My title for you this morning is Learning from History. By way of introduction, I want to quote Winston Churchill, who said this, Those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. History, as far as you and I are concerned, is God's story. And we have it contained here in the scriptures because God did not work outside of time and space, but God worked inside of time and space to accomplish his will and to bring about a particular purpose for his people. Old Testament scholar E.J. Young, who is best known for his commentaries on Isaiah and Daniel, wrote these words, and I think they're important for us to hear. The Bible, then, must teach us what we are to believe because the Bible is God's word. A consistent Christian will seek to maintain the same view of Scripture that was held by the Lord Jesus Christ and the New Testament writers. What that view was is not difficult to discover, and it is not our purpose to say more at this point other than to point out that they regarded Scripture as God-breathed, infallible, and written by holy men who were born by the Holy Spirit. In other words, I want you to hold these two things simultaneously, each in one hand. If we do not learn history, we are condemned to repeat it. God's Word contains history in the lessons. So without any further ado, I want to introduce our first point this morning. We're going to begin with... Israel's history. Two simple points, Israel's history and God's timing. We're going to begin with our first point, which is Israel's history. Beginning at the top of chapter 1, if you look at it again with your eyes, we're immediately met with this phrase, these are the words. These are the words. This is a Hebrew phrase, Allah ha-debarim, which is these are the words, and this is a phrase that essentially was the title of this book for a long, long time before it was finally coined Deuteronomy, meaning second law. We covered that last week. Dabarim is the word for words in Hebrew, and therefore this book, before it was coined as Deuteronomy, was just called the book of words. Which words are we referring to here? Well, the Bible tells us which words. Look at it again with your eyes. It says, these are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness, in the Arabah, opposite Suf, between Paran and Topol, Laban, Hazaroth, and Dizahab. Now, everyone's going, that means absolutely nothing to me. Don't worry, I brought a map. So, this is going to give you a sort of general perspective of what we're talking about. Now, full disclosure, a number of these places are unknown today. It's speculated as to their vicinity, but we do know some specific places. So I've got a map here for you just to give you a bit of perspective. Obviously, the Mediterranean Sea is there. They leave Egypt and go over the tip of the Red Sea there, which is where God divides the sea but drowns Pharaoh and his army, and they go south through Sinai, and they get down to Mount Sinai there, which is not really called Sinai in the book of Deuteronomy. 
by the way. It's called Horeb. But it's the same place. It's not until Deuteronomy 32 or 33, whichever one it is, um, that they refer to Sinai. But it's sort of like South Florida or Miami-Dade. You know, we, we use words in, interchangeably, and so did ancient people. So they go down through si- uh, the, the Sinai Peninsula to Mount Sinai, and they come back up into Arabah, which is that general area, or Seir, which is what we know to be Edom. Both of those areas are sort of adjacent to each other, but Kadesh Barnea is an actual city that is on the cusp of the land of Canaan, just before they go in. All the other places are not of real value or importance to us. The places that you need to have some general understanding of are on this map, so that as I'm telling you, The names and the locations, you can kind of have a mental picture of what we're talking about. So, to put it simply, the reference to Sinai is a general area. These are the words that were spoken there in that area from God to Moses to God's people to remind them of their history, to remind them of what God had done. Now, look at verse 2. Verse 2 says, it is 11 days' journey to Hor- from Horeb. That's the equivalent of Sinai. It's an 11 days' journey from Horeb by way of Mount Seir. So they come south along the western bank of Sinai and then al- along the way of Mount Seir. So when they go north, they don't go back the way they came, but they go up the east coast of the Sinai Peninsula in that direction. By way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea, which you can see with your eyes. In the 40th year of the first day of the 11th month, Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him to command them. Now, let me share some things with you. Two things that are worthy of note here. And the first thing is this. Disobedience causes a delay. Disobedience causes delay. I want you to look at the scripture again, verses 1 and 2. Although we read this and we quickly move through everything that Moses is saying, because let's be honest, we're not up to speed on some of these names and some of these dates, and so we read through it without paying very much attention to it, but if we camp out for a minute, and if I do my job and you do your job, then we see something that comes to the surface very readily. So look at verse 2, if you would, again, and it says this, it is 11 days' journey from Horeb by way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea in the 40th year of the first day of the 11th month, Moses spoke to the people. Did you get that? Do you see what Moses just said? Disobedience caused delay. He says, it takes 11 days to get from Horeb to Kadesh Barnea, but it took us 40 years. It took us 40 years to take an 11-day journey because the people didn't obey God. Let me tell you again, disobedience causes delay. But that's not all. Not only did it take them 40 years to take a trek of 150 miles from Horeb to Kadesh Barnea, 11-day journey of 150 miles took them 40 years. Not only did it take them that long to do it because disobedience causes delay, but in addition to that, secondly, Disobedience, more seriously, causes death. 
Now, true, there was a delay because of disobedience. But furthermore, and more importantly, there was also death. We see this throughout the Bible. Adam is told by God, you can eat any fruit you want, but not that one. Because in the day that you eat of that, you will surely what? You will surely die. Now, we know that Adam and Eve had this whole exchange. Eve looks at it and says, oh, it looks very sumptuous and tasty. And, And she says, what do you think, honey? And Adam says, whatever you say, babe. And Satan is like, I'm sure God didn't mean what he said when he said it. And they go, well, let's eat of it anyway. So they eat of it. And do they die immediately? No. But do they die? Yes. The apostle John addresses this as well in 1 John chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. In 1 John chapter 5, verses 16 and 17, John says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin that doesn't lead to death, He shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. And I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin. But there is sin that does not lead to death. Arguably one of the most difficult passages in the entire New Testament There's a couple of shades of meaning here that we can accept. Maybe what John is saying is that we should not pray for somebody who is acting so stupid and so foolish and is completely deaf and blind to any instruction or guidance or recommendation that they're going to live their life on the edge of life and death. And if that's the way they want to do it, John says, let them have at it. Don't pray for those fools because they're not listening. That's one shade of meaning. Another shade of meaning might be that the rejection of Jesus Christ as Savior is meant here. And John is saying, if they're rejecting Jesus Christ outright, don't bother. Regardless of where we fall in the meaning of this, John is pretty clear. Friends, sin leads to death. Adam died. The apostle John died. And why is it in particular under this title of Israel's history that we're addressing this? Well, the reason is found in Numbers chapter 14, verse 29. In Numbers chapter 14, verse 29, God's word says this, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. And of all your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me, Not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell except Caleb and Joshua. Because Caleb and Joshua were people of faith. They were the spies that spoke favorably and honestly of God's promise. Here's my point, church. Israel didn't immediately die after God's judgment was placed on them for their disobedience. But they did die outside the promised land. So that the generation that doubted God and failed at the point of faith didn't enter the promised land except for Caleb and Joshua. But the next generation did. How does this apply to us? Well, let me share a couple of things with you. Every time we disobey God, we delay our progress. 
And if you're writing notes today, write it like this. Every time I disobey God, I slow my progress. Every time you and I choose to live outside of the will of God, we postpone sanctification, we postpone progress, we postpone our destiny. God has not called us to hesitate, to calculate, or to procrastinate. God has called us to obey. Period. And now is the time to submit to his will. Not tomorrow, but today. Not when you get this little thing figured out or whatever. No, wholeheartedly, right now, without reservation, because if we don't, we're delaying our progress in Christ. But there's more. Every time we disobey, we delay our progress. But in addition to that, every time we disobey God, we cause death. And while we're promised eternal life in Christ, and that can never be robbed of us, as sure as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit can never be separated, that's how sure your salvation is in Christ. So while we cannot lose the promise of life in Christ, there is a spiritual depression that can affect us when we're disobedient to our Heavenly Father and that can rob us of our spiritual heartbeat and vitality. I run into Christians all the time, perhaps you do too, who are in Christ. They have trusted Jesus Christ, but it looks like they're spiritual zombies, man. Every time a conversation about Christianity or the morals of Christ or the ethics or the theology of the Bible come up, it's like they're moaning and groaning and, 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 and suddenly they can't speak the English language because they're spiritual zombies. Hey, do you go to church anymore? That's it. Because they have no clarity to give you because they're spiritually sick because of sin. When Christians are disobedient, they may not lose their salvation, but you see a difference in their vitality. You see a difference in their spiritual heartbeat. Secondly, I want to note something else under this idea of Israel's history. And that is that Moses is dedicated to God's word. Let's jump down a couple of verses to verse five. If you jump down to verse five, you'll see these words. Beyond the Jordan, in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to explain this law, saying, the Lord, all capitals. Do you see that? All capitals, meaning this is the personal name of God. This is Yahweh. The Lord, our God, said to us in Horeb, you have stayed long enough at this mountain. Turn and take your journey. The first thing I want you to note here is this phrase, Moses undertook to explain this law. Moses undertook to explain this law. If you're not using an ESV, maybe you're using an NIV, you'll notice that your translation says, Moses began to expound the law. This word Be'er in the Hebrew is used also in Deuteronomy 27, verse 8, where it says that the words were made plain. That's the word be'er. It's the same word that's being used here to describe Moses explaining or expounding the word. It basically means to explain something so that it's absolutely clear 
and plain. You see, as the leader of God's people, that's what Moses was doing. He wasn't only repeating the law for a second time, but he was also expounding it, teaching it, making its meaning and its application clear and plain for the people to hear, receive, and understand. Interestingly, the Theological Dictionary of the Old Testament says that this Hebrew word is also the word that is used for well, as in lower the bucket into the well. And I quote, The well is a symbol of wisdom as the place of deepening thoughts. God's word is deep. God's word is the well from which we draw understanding and wisdom. That's what Moses is doing. We're, as it were, standing around the well of God's word, and Moses is drawing water out for us and helping us understand. He's explaining it. He's expounding it. As God's people, there should be no greater pleasure for us than to hear the covenant of our God expounded and taught and applied so that our hearts and minds don't rely on our ability to do anything, but on the ability of the God who saves us, who delivers us from our enemies, and who keeps his promises. That's Israel's history painted here in the first few verses. Let's go from Israel's history to God's timing. If you say amen, God's timing is seen secondly, and we're going to begin where we left off, namely verse 5. If you'll look at it with your eyes as I read, Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 5 says this, Beyond the Jordan, that's, that's to say not in the promised land yet, just on the other side of the promised land as the Jordan divides it, beyond the Jordan in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to explain, expound, teach, as it were, draw water from the well for the people of God, saying, the Lord our God said to us in Horeb, you have stayed long enough at this mountain. Turn and take your journey and go to the hill country of the Amorites and to all their neighbors in Arabah, in the hill country and in the lowland and in the Negeb, by the seacoast, the land of the Canaanites and Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. See, I have set the land before you. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord your swore to your fathers, that the Lord swore to your fathers, excuse me, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give them and to their offspring after them. There's a few things here that I want us to note. First, I want you to note that God's timing isn't always comfortable. God's timing isn't always comfortable. The journey would be arduous. And what was waiting for the people of God at the end of this journey was battle. It was easy for them to stay put. It was easy for them to put it off. It was easy for them to reconsider and to consider again and to think further about what was awaiting them. Maybe you've been there. In fact, at one point, Numbers chapter 14 tells us, they decided maybe we won't go that way. Maybe we'll go backwards. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night 
All the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Oh, would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose another leader and go back to Egypt. I have a sermon called Painting Pictures of Egypt, which I've been told is a pretty good sermon. This is that. You know, when you start to press up against difficulty or challenge, and you go, that was easy. It was easier the other way. But you're not being honest with yourself, just like the Israelites weren't being honest with themselves. They would say, oh, we had cucumbers and melons and salads, and, and we had it so well in Egypt, and they didn't. They were slaves. They were in bondage, but we have a tendency when we press up against challenge to paint a dishonest picture for ourselves about what used to be. You know the old days. Things were so much better then. And maybe there were things that were better in the old days, but let's just face the fact. Today will be whatever you make it. And to say that it used to be better yesterday is nothing but a lazy excuse for the present. Church, aside from the fact that Israel is in this situation because of disobedience, this principle is still true. God's timing isn't always comfortable. God's timing isn't always comfortable. Look at what he says, verse 5. Uh, verse 6, I'm sorry. The Lord our God said to us in Horeb, in Horeb, you have stayed here long enough. I wonder how many of you have stayed long enough where you are. I wonder how many of you have stayed long enough where you are. I wonder how many of you have stayed long enough to miss opportunities, to forfeit blessings, or even to remain faithful to his will. God's timing won't always be comfortable, church, but God's timing will always be right, and it will always be good. Don't be so immature as to think that just because something is challenging, it must not be God's will. That's a child's mentality. Adults don't think that way. Adults know that oftentimes the success that God has in store for you is on the opposite side of that challenge, which envelops a lesson he requires you to learn in order to be successful. We want everything downloaded. God, make me patient. Don't ever pray that. It's the worst prayer idea you've ever had because God will teach you patience in situations that challenge your patience. God, make me wise. God will put you in situations that require knowledge and understanding to be exercised so that you can gain 
wisdom. Listen, God's timing is not always comfortable. But second, God's timing is tied to his plan and your legacy. God's timing is tied to his plan, which is non-negotiable, and your legacy. You got to get this, church. We like to think that we have life all figured out. And when we do what we want to do out of neglect of the providence of God, everything is somehow still going to be sussed out in the end. First, I'll go to school. Then I'll get a job. Then I'll advance my career. Then I'll get married. Nobody wants to marry a 38-year-old. Then I'll have kids. Listen, you can't do that forever. The reality of the matter is, is we have a tendency to think that we have control over our lives without any expense or any cost whatsoever. But we have to appreciate this fact, church. God's timing is tied to his plan and our legacy. These things have to be considered together. Instead of saying, at 20 years old, first I'll go to school, and then I'll get married, and then I'll start my job, and then I'll advance my career, and then I'll consider having children, or first maybe I'll buy a house, and then I'll have... It. Instead of thinking that way, let me ask you this question. When do you sit down and say, God, what do you want from me? That's your legacy. God's timing is tied to his plan and your legacy. You can't just live your life however you want and then think that everything is going to be fine in the end. When do you sit down and say, regardless of what I want, God, what do you want? What do you want for me in this situation? I want to talk to you, church, for a minute about your legacy. Your destiny is yours, personally, no matter what. And I don't believe that destiny is what is often presented to us. I'll tell you what I believe a destiny is. I believe that your destiny is the accumulation of your decisions that you've made in Christ. To put it quite simply... Your destiny is the destination that the accumulation of your decisions in Christ leads you to. That's different from what the world passes down to you. What the world is telling you is that somehow, some way, you can be as disobedient as you want. And in spite of that, your destiny will be there waiting for you. Which is always amazing, by the way. That's not the way it works, is it? The destiny of your Tupperware drawer in your kitchen is not to be organized unless you organize it. So it is with your life. You will not have an amazing destiny if the accumulation of your decisions in Christ do not lead you to that destination. That's destiny. 
So don't walk around here in my church talking about how amazing everything is going to be in your life while you make every decision out of complete disrespect and a lack of consideration for Jesus. You have something coming for you that I want nothing for you or anybody else. You want to have a destiny that honors God, you have to make decisions that reflect godliness, Christ-likeness, and God's will. But that's destiny. Destiny is your destination. That is personal. That is the accumulation of your decisions in Christ. If you live this way, you land at this destination. But if you live that way, you will not land at this destination. You will land at that destination. And so will your marriage and your kids and your health and your mint, etc. But on the other hand, while the destiny is personal, the legacy is something different. The legacy you leave behind. The destiny might be personal, but the legacy you leave behind. The legacy you leave behind has to do with the seeds you sow during your life. What seeds do you sow? Because when you die and you leave, your legacy is the growth of those seeds. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 22. A good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. What kind of inheritance are you leaving? What are you passing down to your kids? Or are you those parents that like, soon the day my kids turn 18, they're on their own? If that's how you live your life, listen, that's your house. I don't pay your mortgage. You can do whatever you want, but that's lame in my opinion. Your kids will always be your kids. But if you have to take care of your kids your entire life, you failed as a parent. Your job as a parent is to prepare your kids for adulthood so that they can be successful. If they can't be successful without your support, you failed the first 10 years. It's hard to undo the mistakes you make in the first 10 years, by the way. You ask, how do I fix this, Joe? I consider the legacy that I'm leaving for the people around me and my children. How can I fix it? Start today. You repent, you redirect, and you start today. What's amazing about the way God made young people is because of his acknowledgement of our great imperfection as parents, amen, he made our kids a little bit like rubber. They'll bounce back. Will you take responsibility? That's the question. The question is not whether or not your kids will bounce back and get on the track that you want them to be on for the best future, the best Christianity, the best blessing that you would want for them. That's not the question. The question is, will you, say I, take responsibility? That's what God is saying here. Get up. It's time to go. You've been here long enough. We survey our life, and 10 years pass, 15 years pass, and we go, I've been a Christian for a long time, but I still don't know one verse. I'm still not more familiar with it. I don't pray anymore. Than, and you know what? My relationship with God isn't any different than, than, it, than it was when I prayed. Now I lay me down to sleep. And that prayer will not get you through adulthood, church. 
There comes a time when God speaks to you and you can listen or obey or you can turn your deaf ear. But the word that God speaks to you is, you've been here long enough. Get up and make the journey. If we don't, we won't leave the legacy. And our destiny will be one of doom. Why is it? Why should we? Look at verse 8. See, I have set the land before you. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them and to their offspring after them. Listen, the people of God are covenant people. God made a covenant, a pact, an agreement with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he's honoring that because God always keeps his promise. And he's honoring that with these people, and he's saying, because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob couldn't or wouldn't remain in the land for one reason or another, we're not going to start in Genesis and go all the way through back up to Deuteronomy, he is still honoring his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to their descendants, and he says, you're moving back into the land. Look at what he says again. See, I've set the land before you. I love what the NASB says. The NASB says, I've placed the land before you. It's almost like God is saying, the blessing is there for your taking. How many of you are ready to take it? How many of you are in that place right now in your life where God has, so to speak, laid the blessing in front of you and he has said, see, it's there for the taking. We like to complicate things, but the reality is God has placed it in front of us, and obedience is the prerequisite. This is so important to God that it says God swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That word swore in the Hebrew in Deuteronomy alone happens over 30 times. Important? Yeah, important. God swore over 30 times in Deuteronomy. What can we learn about this in regards to the legacy that you and I leave? The first thing I think that is important is that your legacy should provide faith. I'm going to say this very cautiously and with all the love in my heart that I can with a pastor, don't receive this like a criticism because I know there isn't one perfect family in here. But as a covenant member of the community, those of you who have children that don't worship the Lord, I know it breaks your heart. I know it breaks your heart. You raise your children in the church You teach them the gospel, you pass it down, and for one reason or another, which we won't delve into this morning, they're not in church, but that's your legacy, isn't it? The first thing you want to pass down before you pass anything else down is the legacy of faith. Whatever our kids might be, whatever the people around us might be, that God has placed us in a sphere of influence for whether it's that sphere of influence or our own biological children, the first part of legacy that we should pass down is the legacy of faith. 
The second thing that your legacy should provide is health. The second thing that your legacy should pass down is health. Let me ask you a very pointed question. When people are done spending time with you, are they better or are they worse? When people are done spending time with you, do they leave with a a brain that has been scrambled, emotions that have been shaken? Or when people leave your presence, do they leave whole? Do they leave feeling blessed? Do they leave saying to themselves, I really enjoyed that time that I spent with that person? That's your legacy. Are you passing down health as part of your legacy? I wonder what part of the legacy in the covenant you and I will be leaving behind. To close, let me remind you of what Winston Churchill said. Those who fail to learn from history are condemned and doomed to repeat it. This is the written and spoken word that God gave to his people. It happened within history. It unfolded in history, not in spite of, not around, not under. God spoke and worked through history because history doesn't belong to us. History belongs to God. All history is his story. Even time belongs to God. Isaiah chapter 46 verse 10 says, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all of my purposes, declares the Lord. History belongs to him. Time belongs to him. May God help you and me to be obedient. Knowing that disobedience causes delay and death knowing that his timing may sometimes be uncomfortable, but that it is tied to his plan and our legacy. May God help us to take seriously the fact that our lives mean something, and he wants to use us for his glory and the good of those who are around us. 